0: right so we've been going through uh, ephesians on sunday morning i'm not going to play with this the whole time i promise um we've been going through ephesians on sunday morning and and so uh, i'm going to go through a bit of background uh, the background of the text is so important to understanding the the text uh, if i were to write a letter to my wife it would be a very different letter than um, if Gary were to write a letter to Sarah. It would be a very different letter. The author matters. The recipient matters. The relationships between the two people matter when you're writing a letter. matter so much. Um, it's also a letter. Um, you know, when I get an email, I read the, the whole email. I don't read a couple of sentences one day and then wait for the next day, thinking about those two sentences, and then the next day I read the next two sentences. This is a letter. It's meant to be all in one chunk. And so it's, it's, a, little, it's a little difficult. You, you do miss a little bit of that. Uh, big picture when you teach it verse by verse, but you also miss out on the depth if you don't teach it verse by verse. But I want to give you guys the background, some scope of Ephesians, some, uh, some background about Paul and Ephesus and all that stuff so we can really better understand what uh, God has for us in chapter 2. Um, so if you don't know anything about Ephesus, uh, this will be great. If you know a ton about Ephesus, feel free to just, uh, I don't know, play a movie in your head or something while I talk. Um, Ephesus was the most important city in Western Asia Minor at the time. It was located on the banks of a major river leading into a major sea. Um, it was on, it was on the Aegean Sea and, uh, and a river and, 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 its, and its centrality to, um, shipping, um, and trade from Asia as well as, um, uh, what's that word, um, trade on the sea. What's that called? I'm sure there's a word for it. Yeah, uh, seagoing trade. It made it, uh, it it was just in a great spot to become a major hub of trade and commerce. And on top of that, there was a, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis was there in Ephesus. Now the people of Ephesus were really kind of territorial about Artemis. So much so that they, they even like drew her different than, than they did in the rest of the world. They didn't just refer to her as Artemis. She was Artemis of the Ephesians. This is a very, very, very big deal. It was really important to them, um, but it was also really important to the local economy. Being, a, being one of the wonders of the ancient world and being such a uh, hub of trade made this a, a very wealthy, affluent city um, that Ephesus attributed to Artemis' Pleasure. Um, most of the town was either involved in the river and sea trade, or involved in the all the stuff that goes around with uh, the the temple. There's a lot of jobs that that temple created. Um, so there's there were people who made idols. There were people who uh, cleaned the temple. There were people who worked in the temple. Um, the temple would bring in, uh, would, would have festivals every year, major festivals that would bring people in from all over the world that, that would come. And so the, the success of the temple was really, really connected to the success, I mean, worldly success we're talking about here, worldly success of Ephesus. So that's why they were rich and affluent was the trade, uh, but also they had a, a really big tourist attraction that brought, brought the crowds. They put the two together, that their adoration of Artemis of the Ephesians was what made their city so, um, so important, so, so affluent. Something else to understand about them too is in their, in their, in their worldview, in their, uh, their religious beliefs, there, there were a lot of gods. It, it's, it's like Hinduism in that way. There's just tons of gods. And even um, and if you remember uh, in Acts, Paul was speaking up Mars Hill and, and he noticed they had a, even a shrine for the unknown god. They didn't want to leave anybody out. They, they were ready with a blank, ready for whoever they found out the next god was. And so they would just add that to the list. So Diana uh, was the, the, the Roman name for Artemis. Uh, there was also a local deity, the Lady of Ephesus, but they just ended up mixing that up with Artemis, um, calling, him, ar- calling her Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, and then sometimes even like the Egyptian god Isis would be worshipped locally, uh, thinking that that was just the Egyptians' version of artemis which the ephesians had their own version and the reason this is important is because there is a really dangerous heresy um, that that happened here um, and it's a syncretism and now when i first time i heard the word syncretism i didn't think it was a real word uh, my dad was talking about it in South Africa. He was a missionary in South Africa for about ten years, and he he ran into this problem there too. People who would who would hear the gospel, they would believe in Jesus. They would they would love the message of grace and hope, and and they would bring it into their lives. But they also wouldn't, but they wouldn't leave behind ancestor worship. They'd still they'd still worship their ancestors. They would just also worship Jesus as well. Um, and that that dog don't hunt. Um, that is just that is not. That is not how we're saved. It's not Jesus and. It's Jesus, only Jesus. And so these people had this, this kind of bent to them. It was just, oh, no problem. You worship Isis? That's cool. That's the same as Artemis. That's fine. Like, we can all worship together. This is cool. You can just add them to the list. When Paul arrived in Ephesus, he found some disciples, but they didn't really know anything about Jesus. Um, they had been baptized uh, into the baptism of repentance uh, that John the baptizer was preaching, but they didn't know about uh, Jesus, his death and resurrection, they didn't know that the kingdom had come. They didn't know that the Holy Spirit was there. And so when Paul told them, they were excited, got baptized, received the Holy Spirit, and were motivated. And, and a lot of theologians believe that these group of 12 guys that Paul found um, near the beginning of his stay in Ephesus were the, the, the first elders of that church, um, these, these 12 guys. They were excited. They were saved. They received the Holy Spirit. And then for the next two years, and then some, Ephesus became a hub for signs and wonders of God's power and of evangelism. During this time, we read of the seven sons of the Jewish chief priest Sceva who were trying to cast out demons using the name of Jesus. They would say, you know, uh, cast you out by the name of Jesus that Paul preaches about. And then there was one time that demon famously retorted, uh, Okay, so I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? And then he beat up, beat up the, the seven sons of Sceva. And this, this was a really dramatic moment um, because people realized uh, may, maybe for the first time if they hadn't, um, if they hadn't seen, um, seen uh, demons coming out, if they hadn't seen the signs and wonders from Paul, this was kind of like a turning point for a lot of people that this demon would not recognize someone who fully believes in Jesus so much so they would attack them because they were just invoking the name, looking for the no-righty, but they didn't really have that faith. Um, and after that, there was, uh, the name of Jesus was honored and revered. And people would say the name of Jesus in town, and it was, it, was a, it was a powerful, powerful name. And I imagine that would have been really easy for Ephesus to just add another name to the list of powerful things, right? It was just a powerful thing. Um, it was far and wide the name of Jesus was revered, but it wasn't for a while yet that true believers, as they, kept, as, they, as they genuinely turned to Jesus and left Artemis behind, um, they started making a dent on the, uh, some of the local businesses attached to the Artemis trade. One of these, uh, one of these local craftsmen, Demetrius, who a man who made silver idols, got other local craftsmen together in an angry group, and they started a mob saying that uh, you know, the, the followers of the way, which is what uh, believers in Jesus were called then, were damaging their business, but, but more than that is that they were going to cause uh, the name of Artemis to fall into disrepute. If they were going to keep taking money away from these craftsmen, their economy wouldn't be as strong, and, uh, and, and Artemis would see that people are turning away from her and to Jesus, and she'd get mad, and the city would fall. Uh, they were worried, and so this chant that they led um, was, uh, was, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. They, they, they yelled that and incited a riot in Ephesus. Um, and it was after that that Paul left. He He left, he left the church in, in good hands. There was a group of elders there. He'd been with them for three years. and, uh, and, and he, he just it was just time for him to go. So Paul left um, knowing that someday he was going to land in Rome, and he came back through later that year on his way to Jerusalem on a rush to get there for Passover. Um, but then he stopped a few days in Miletus, a couple days away from Ephesus, and he called the Ephesian elders to him at Miletus, and I think that he didn't go into uh, into Ephesus to talk to them because he loved them so much it would be just too hard to leave. Paul was a rolling stone, and he had stayed in Ephesus for three years. That's not for no reason. He loved these people, but he stopped in Miletus, and he had them come to him, Um, and he said this, uh, uh, he said a goodbye to the Ephesian elders that was just deep. And I um, actually preached about that months and months ago. It's just an amazing address. He uh, encourages them and he reminds them of, uh, of the truth. And he tells them that, that uh, he's going to go and be persecuted and, in, and jailed and, and it's going to be fine. And it's going to be fine. Um, and then he does and, 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 he, and he does that. He goes to Jerusalem and uh, causes problems, or rather problems are caused for him. Uh, and then he eventually lands in jail in, in Rome, and between 60 and 62 A.D., in prison in Rome, after having said goodbye to the church uh, at Ephesus and having said goodbye to the elders specifically, he writes this letter, and it's unique. It's really, really unique. All the other letters from Paul are correcting either some sort of big heresy going on in the church or there's some moral failure some error to be corrected or in the case of the Corinthians he had to write a letter just justifying or uh, defending his apostleship but he didn't have to do any of that here this isn't a letter confronting them for wrong thinking or wrong beliefs it's not a letter correcting them on on bad behavior it's not a letter defending his apostleship it's just a letter encouraging them about the beliefs and behaviors of someone who lives according to the gospel and believes in Jesus it's just an encouragement to, to saved people. Um, it's just an encouragement with the gospel. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful to read. Uh, chapter one is just so big. Um, and and one major theme um, so far that we've been finding, um, like I said, we've been going through this on Sunday mornings, it's just so obvious that Paul wants every Scrap of glory to go to God and God alone. In him is a is a a main repeated phrase in chapter one of Ephesians. In him. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Why? To the praise of His glory. It is just so much God and so little us. It's wonderful. Then, in chapter 2, he, uh, um, I'm just going to read the first seven verses of chapter 2 uh, real quick for you. followers of the world, sons of disobedience, led by the passions of our flesh, children of wrath by nature. And, um, and this is to highlight something so beautiful. He's making it very clear that we are not super cool by ourselves. Uh, he is emphasizing the depths of our depravity to show the heights of his grace and love, his mercy towards us. The first point he he makes about God in light of our former life here in uh, chapter 2 is that he is rich in mercy because we needed it. We were dead in our sin, and God, because of his love, had mercy on us and made us alive together with Christ. That is grace, and it is by grace that you have been saved. We were spiritual corpses, but then God reached down into death and brought us up, not just to life, but to something so much better than just mere life. Like it says, he brought us and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He brought us from death into his family, adopted the dead into the, the, the family of Christ, making us co-heirs with his own son. This is huge. Huge. Why would he do that? Why love the unlovable? Why why make the unlovely lovely? Why resurrect the dead? It's to show off his great love. It's to glorify his name. It's to just just be good so that we would love him and give him glory, so that we can be saved to even uh, have the equipment to give him glory. The depths of our depravity and need highlight the overwhelming love and grace of God. We are the ultimate charity case, the terminal patient, the worst of criminals, and God is the ultimate, loving, merciful, sacrificial Savior. Which brings us to our passage for today. (laughs) For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." for by grace you have been saved. Paul cannot talk about this gift, uh, this this glorious work of God, without reminding us that it is a gift of grace. It is a gift of grace given to the undeserving. I gotta tell you, um, I am so glad that Santa is not real because I never would have gotten presents. (laughs) I was a sinner as a kid. My kids sin, and I am so glad we don't teach the, the Santa gospel of you have to be good to get it. No, just get it because I love them. For by grace you have been saved, not because we would deserve it. It's not, even just, it's not even our faith alone, but grace through faith, given to the undeserving. God's grace is the keystone of this whole thing. Yeah, faith is how we get there. Christ's death ju- satisfied justice. His resurrection grants us life. His mercy pardons our crime, but it is by his grace that we are saved. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The work of salvation is God's gift, as are the ingredients. He doesn't just take what we're working with and add, add the little, like, special herbs and spices that make us amazing. We are nothing. He is everything. It is all a gift from the Lord. And not at all from ourselves. And we, can't, we shouldn't try to blend that. I'm going to tell you, it's really easy to blend it. This is something I battle with in my own heart of when I feel, when I'm struggling with sin or I'm struggling with suffering or I'm struggling with stress or whatever it is, I want to fix things. I want to optimize my life. I want to come up with a good plan um, and I want to do it uh, my way because I think I know best always. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't work when it comes to sanctification. We're saved by grace and we're sanctified by grace. We're not saved by grace and sanctified by our own ingenuity. That's just not how it goes. It is not at all from ourselves. Even our faith is a gift from God. We cannot believe in Jesus without his intervention. Remember, we're dead in our sins. Dead in our sins. Dead people can't do anything. If I tried to race my grandma right now, I would win because she's dead and in heaven. I would win. She can't do anything. And, I, and I'm, some, sometimes when I say that, people get a little sensitive, but she's better off than we are. She's with the Lord, and, and it's great. Um, so just let the analogy happen, and we can move on. Uh, Second <laughs> Peter 1.1 1, 1 says, because sometimes I get like a, <gasps> um, she's better off than we are. It's all right. right. Um, Second Peter 1.1 1, 1 says this, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith, not to those who have somehow managed to muster up a faith worthy of salvation. Philippians 1.29 says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Um, and that puts suffering and faith on the same level as gifts from God. So just to, just to hammer that home a little bit, which as I was studying, God hammered me a bit because that seems like it's been the theme of this last year, not just for me, but for maybe many of us, that suffering is a... Good thing, um, granted to us. But also so is faith. And then Acts uh, 3.16 says this, and on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him, capital H, him, has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So this person who was healed, um, this person who was was healed um, was given the faith that healed him. Let me read it again. And on the basis of faith in His name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through Him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you, all. And as an aside, this, uh, this, this, uh, this idea shows the essential place that prayer has in evangelism. Since it's God that initiates salvation, we should begin our evangelism with asking God to do the initiating, to change hearts, to make good soil, um, to do the initiated and granting the ability to believe to those we want to see saved. We pray that God will move first before we try to say anything at all because it's God that changes the heart. We're scattering seeds. It's God that makes the soil um, makes the soil good. Even our faith, even our faith is a gift from God. And that's a good thing. It's not of works, so no one can boast. It is a good thing, and God did it, not of works, simply so that no one could boast. Why would God want to share glory? Why would God want to share glory? He's the one that deserves it. We obviously don't. Just look around. We we don't deserve it. Um, But under God's, Uh, If salvation was an accomplishment of man in any way, we could boast about it, but under God's plan of salvation, God alone receives the glory, which is good because we are creation and he is creator. The man who makes the Ferrari wants the credit for making the Ferrari. The person who writes the book wants the credit for writing the book, right? You don't read a book and say, wow, that book just did itself really great things when it wrote itself. Fantastic book that wrote itself. We can't boast, and that is good. The world doesn't think that's good, because that's a low view of self. But, that, but that's OK, because we can't get there ourselves. We can't get there by ourselves. It's not, it's not us at all. It is good to be low so that he can be high. It's good to recognize, again, the depths of our depravity, so we can bask in the glories of His grace. Like Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth. But it hits our hearts and hits our pride and hits our hearts in a sensitive spot right there in the pride. It gets us because we want to be enough. We want to be able to say, look at me, yes, I did it, super Christian. But we can't and that's good we are the sheep and he is the shepherd. We are the creation and he is the creator and he is the one that needs all the credit and all the glory. And like I said, we are his creation. The next phrase says, for we are his workmanship. God saves us not merely to save us from the wrath we rightly deserve, again, we rightly deserve, but also to make something beautiful of us. We are his workmanship, Poema, Workmanship. That's not just something built um, to work. That's something done with beauty and excellence. Poiema. In the Jewish Bible, that's translated as work of art. (laughs) Work of art. Not accidental doodles. Kandinsky looking at you. Not accidental doodles. (laughs) It is something done with beauty and excellence. Thoughtful. With a purpose. He makes us... New, but not just new and functioning. He makes us new and beautiful. God's love is a transforming love, and we, those of us who are in Christ, are the product of a master craftsman, and we were remade at the moment of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. A new creation, poema, a work of art. Spurgeon says this, um, uh, I, love, I love Spurgeon. He had so much bluster. Um, and yeah, Apparently, he could preach and be heard like half mile away or three quarters of a mile away. Dude had lungs, like iron lungs. Anyway, let me, let me tell you what he says about this. The spiritual life cannot come to us by development from our old nature. I've heard a great deal about evolution and development, but I am afraid that if any one of us were to be developed to our utmost apart from the grace of God, we should come out worse than before the development began we need to be made new and when we are we are a work of art created in Christ Jesus for good works because he isn't senseless or random we were made and remade in Christ for a purpose and that purpose is to give him glory and enjoy him forever Good works, the things that we do in our new life, are just as much a part of God's plan as anything else. These works are evidence that someone is walking with Christ because remember, before Christ, we were dead in our sins, unable to do anything, unable to save ourselves, unable to please God. Romans 8, 8 says those who live according to the flesh cannot please God. We were just separate and lost, alienated, broken, dead, couldn't do anything. And now we are alive in Christ. And John 15, 8 says this, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Living according to the flesh and the world cannot please God, so when He saves us and makes us new, He enables us finally to do stuff and finally able to glorify Him. Before we're in Christ, we are a bad tree producing only bad fruit. And even when we try to do something good, it comes out of a heart that's filled with sin and even our good fruit is tainted with that sin. We cannot please God because of what's in our heart, because of the separation from him, and because we are dead. He has to make us new. We can't just staple good apples to a bad tree. We need to be made into a whole new tree, and then, then we will be able to produce fruit, because that's why you plant an apple tree in your backyard, is to get apples. (laughs) That's why God makes you alive in him, so you can give him glory, So you can can do these wonderful works that he's prepared for you as his work of art, as a creation of his. He prepared it all for you to do it, so do it. Therefore, therefore. And whenever you read therefore in the Bible, you've got to think about what it's there for. It goes on to say, Therefore, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, what is it therefore? Therefore, what is the therefore? It's remember. 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 They are to remember who they are in light of God and His grace. Paul is going to go on even more to talk about how far away from God we are before, before we're saved, and this is good. Remember, pointing, trying uh, uh, attention to who we are before Christ and putting it next to the contrast of God's grace and His mercy and who we are in Him is a beautiful, beautiful thing. <clears throat> the world will... F- find it distasteful to talk about the depravity of man. Even a lot of Christians find it distasteful to talk about the depravity of man. How else are we going to give so much glory to God's love for us? All right, let's move on. I'm going to repeat myself a million times, I bet, because that's just just so beautiful. Anyway, formerly you, Gentiles in the flesh. Remember, God, uh, remember Paul is writing this to Gentiles. Um, I don't know of anybody who's an ethnic Jew in here, Um, but looking around, I'm assuming most of you are Gentiles as well, Um, and so this message is is for us as well. You Gentiles, just means non-Jewish, for you Gentiles in the flesh. That word Gentiles, ethnos, could mean the spiritually lost, as sometimes it's referred, as sometimes it's used, but this specifically, when it's coupled with in the flesh, helps us understand this is not just those who are far from Christ, this is ethnically those who are Gentiles. Paul's going to make a really important point here um, that I want us to, to grab onto because the, the, the Bible isn't just New Testament. Uh, the work of salvation didn't start on Christmas. It started at the beginning of time. It started Old Testament and, and through it all. You can find the intact gospel in the Old Testament. The Tanakh is there. Um, And Paul uh, can't separate himself from that. Being a Jew himself, growing up with the scriptures, growing up with the promises of God um, outlined and repeated over and over and over again, um, growing up with um, with the tangible history of God's grace for his people, he's got to bring in the Old Testament because it's all connected. So he's talking Gentiles in the flesh because God's work of reconciliation is not only between God and the individual, though it must begin there, it's also between groups of people who are once far off. God is bringing all together. The gospel has gone out to Gentiles, praise God, Um, we can be saved as well. Gentiles who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. He's separating them. Formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, and now circumcision and uncircumcision. He's separating them to talk about them specifically. So he's separating them from the Jewish people a bit in this to make a, again, beautiful, beautiful point. And we're going to get there. Formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, um, called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. The Jewish faith came with lots of rituals. All these physical expressions that come from a heart of worship. But they weren't approved of if they didn't come with that heart of worship. In Malachi, God talks to these people who are making these great sacrifices, uh, who are making these sacrifices faithfully, but they're not doing it with the heart of love for Jesus. And so what does God say? He goes, I'm gonna rub the dung of your sacrifices on your faces. Extreme, but it just shows his distaste for that. His absolute distaste, distaste for that empty practice without a heart, because it's always been about our heart. Abraham, his, his faith was accredited to him as righteousness, because he believed. He was a scaredy cat. He didn't trust God in times when it really mattered, but overall, he had this faith in God. When God said, go, I'm not going to tell you where, he went. When he said, kill your son, he goes, okay. He had a faith in God, and that faith was accredited to him as righteousness, Paul, a Jewish man, to talk about circumcision this way, called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, tells us something really important about Paul as well. This Jewish man gets it. Freed from the law of, of, of works, freed from the law of the flesh, freed from the Old Testament law, he is now under the law of grace. Under the law of grace, he's not telling them, get circumcised, be a Jew first. He's telling them, this isn't, you guys are separate, yes, but, it's like this is just a physical thing with human hands. It's just something in your body, in your flesh. It's irrelevant to this grace that we're talking about. But it does say something else. um, Because, before Jesus, the only way to, to worship God truly, the only way to serve him truly, the only way to obey him truly was to ob- obey the law. That was the only way. And so for thousands of years, this devotion was required. Sacrifices were required. Circumcision for men was required. This was, there was There were all these ritual things that were required. Um, and those who didn't do them were far from God. They were more fully separated from him. And he's going to continue this point. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Again, telling them to remember. And what is he telling them to remember? Who they are apart from Christ. Remember this. Remember that you at at that time were separate from Christ. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. This time to remember specifically that they were once unsaved, lost, and separated. Paul brings yet another distinction between Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles are not just spiritual foreigners, they're spiritual and ethnic foreigners. That even the people of God, even the, 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 most, the lazy Jew back then could still go to the temple and offer sacrifice, right? They, they, they can still go and, and have that washing done so they can offer their sacrifice. They can still do that. But those who weren't were, were separate, weren't they? So one more point is being leveled against us Gentiles is that before Christ, we are as far off as one can be from God. As far off as we can be. He goes on to say after that, strangers to the covenants of promise. Um, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. This, like I mentioned, is the foundation of the gospel in the Old Testament. The promises made to people like Abraham where he promised that through his family the Redeemer was going to come. And then to David, these promises made, talking to, talk, uh, talked about in Jeremiah and Isaiah and all over. I don't think you could open up a, a one of, any of the prophets, uh, maybe any of the Old Testament books at all, and not find the fingerprints of the gospel to come. These promises are there, but the Gentiles had no clue. They didn't grow up with that. Their f- the foundation of their life wasn't built on understanding and studying these promises of God and the history of His grace towards His people, Again, they were so far removed. Paul goes even to say without God in the world, which I thought was interesting because Romans 1.20 says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. But even though God's presence and influence are impossible to escape, the Gentiles had no hope of communion with God because of how far away they were ethnically and spiritually, so far away. That was us before Christ, fellow Gentiles. (laughs) Maybe not as extreme. Some of us grew up in Christian homes, so there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, But still separate from the application of those promises, uh, many of them, some of them. by mentioning the details of how non-Jewish the Ephesians are, Paul is reminding the readers that unsaved Gentiles are as far away from God as possible. But this, the beautiful point, but this is to bring even greater glory to God. But now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now in Christ Jesus has to be one of the most beautiful phrases. It's like when you when you come across but God in the Bible, you're reading something and then it says, but God, and you know something amazing is going to follow. You know something eternity changing or something life changing is going to follow. Something beautiful and encouraging is going to happen. But now in Christ Jesus, those words, those powerful words, it is only because of Christ that any are saved. In Christ Jesus, those who are the furthest out have been brought near. This may be old news that it's only because of Christ that any are saved, but it is essential. Because remember, you cannot mix and match. It is Jesus only Jesus. Nothing else gets to get blended into that. It is Jesus only Jesus or you got nothing. Because remember how far away we were, unable to do it, unable to do it alone. And as we were told earlier, remember, remember this we are called after that amazing description, description of God's grace through faith, um, being God's workmanship. We are told to remember twice, told to remember, remember that it is now, that only now in Christ Jesus that we have any hope at all. This isn't because of any other person, power or accident. It's Jesus, only Jesus. And it's because of Christ Jesus that we who were once far off have been brought near. Remember how far off you were remember that but don't remember it by itself remember where you are now you look at where you were separated by god uh, separated from god by an eternal chasm eternal chasm through faith by god's grace we have been brought near and remember when he took us from death and not just into life he didn't just bring us into life basic existence He didn't just make us basically able to be effective. He made us into beautiful works of art and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We were the furthest out, spiritually dead, alienated from God, once a different people, not belonging to God and even without access to God. But God sent his son to earth to seek and to save the lost. Jesus died to bridge the gap separating us. And he did it by shedding his blood. His death was absolutely necessary to clear our debts because the wages of sin is death. The blood of Christ shed by his mercy, uh, because of his mercy, love, and grace. And he did this while we were still sinners. I don't think that gets talked about enough. It's really easy around church folk to focus mostly on behavior. It's really easy. And it's really easy in such a well-behaved group of people um, to be uncomfortable when someone who's poorly behaved comes around right like can someone really be saved if they if they still say bad words (laughs) yes absolutely (laughs) you can't clean up first that's the whole point of this thing right it's like yes you are so far away from God you are lost in your sin dead in your transgressions you can't clean up first Jesus takes in the worst of humanity and where does he put them he puts them in the church he seats them in the heavenly places with Christ. He makes them into beautiful works of art. You cannot clean up before you come to Christ. And we shouldn't expect that of anybody. Because those who live according to the flesh cannot please God. It's not like we require people to, to please God before they get saved and that pleasing God then gets them saved. No, this is, that's just all backwards. But, but you guys, can you guys think, can you guys imagine that struggle I hope so because I've seen it. I I mean, for those of you who've grown up in the church, I'm sure you've seen a moment where someone, because of their their language or lifestyle or their habits, gets judged by the Christians for being far away from Jesus. How dare you be far away from Jesus? Those are the targets. Those are the lost people. Jesus came to seek and save. Jesus came to seek and save. And it's toward those sinners that Christ demonstrates his love. So, Paul, being an ethnic Jew, being a professional Jew, having once been a Pharisee and a pro at the Old Testament, is reminding us that those of us who are so far off, as far away as you can because of the blood of Jesus, have been brought near. Not because of us, but because of Him. We aren't required to become great Jews first. Praise the Lord. I had bacon this morning. Oh. We aren't required to do any of that ritualistic cleanup. Praise God for that. There's lots of huge doctrine in this passage, but let's just wrap it up and put a bow on it. Paul starts this section with a gorgeous description of salvation and God's grace. It's a gift. Faith, grace, Salvation, gifts from God. And then, after the therefore, we are told to remember our experience with God's grace. Salvation is granted us because of God's great mercy and love shown on the cross as a work of His grace, giving us spiritual life and the ability to glorify Him in our hearts and in the way we live. And that is, again, essential. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hand in hand with our new life needs to come acting like an alive person. But don't forget the admonishment to remember. Remember the gospel. Remember who we are apart from Christ. But also, most importantly, remember how much we have been blessed in Him. You need to remember your salvation and act like it. You need to remember your salvation and act like it. And I'm going to tell you, keeping your life according to the Word of God, as Psalm 119 tells us, is how you keep it pure. When the world pushes in, and the attractive wisdom of, of the world, and of Oprah, and the internet, and, and all this stuff pushes in. It's attractive, because it's easy, and it, puts, and it puts us on a pedestal. The wisdom of the world puts people up above God, but when we live our life according to the word of God, we can keep our way pure. When we will remember the gospel and preach it to ourselves, remember how far away we were, and how near to Christ we are, and how little we had to do with it, because really in that deal, you know, in the new covenant, that contract, Jesus came with grace, and faith, and mercy, and love, he came with uh, with his blood shed and the price paid for, he came offering to erase our debts and give us a hope and a future and an eternity. He, he came offering to give us his Holy Spirit to help us be more like him every day, to understand the word of God, to have love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He comes with all of that. And what does he ask us to do? Give him our sin. That's a good deal. <laughs> That's a good deal. Amen? Remember your salvation and act like it. Years ago, I was on a trip uh, to India, job shadowing a South African missionary. It was us and a bunch of us who, uh, it was me and a bunch of us in the, in the group who thought we were called to full-time missions in the future. Um, and so we, we went to India to shadow this South African missionary living there, and, uh, and during that time, I got a chance to preach the gospel to a large group of locals. Uh, it was my first time preaching with a, a uh, well, no, second time preaching with a translator, but it was it's still a trip if you ever have to talk through a translator. And as I was preparing Gareth, the missionary was a huge help. He had been living there for a while and knew the culture, and in the prep time, reminded, uh, he, 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 uh, he, he told me um, not to refer to God simply by saying God. He goes, don't just say, and then God loves you, and God wants to save you. These Hindus have over four million gods and just like the Ephesians, it would be so easy to hear the love of Jesus and say, wow, that's great, I love Jesus. Let's add him to the list. We are not preaching a Jesus and message. We're not even preaching a Jesus and me message, a Jesus and you message. We're preaching a message of grace only grace, faith only faith, Jesus only Jesus, right? So he told me, you've got to refer to him, I call him Jehovah God, the one and only so as I was preparing to preach, it, uh, I had to be very intentional in my notes to write Jehovah God, the one and only. Because the battle, like in Ephesus, the battle of truth doesn't revolve around, doesn't revolve around belief in Jesus. The battle has always been whether or not to die to self and live for Christ or not. Isn't that, isn't that the battle? Revelation tells us that even, under the, even during the reign of Christ, when he is physically on earth and in charge, people are still just not going to believe Even today, belief that Jesus lived, died, and came back from the dead isn't where the massive quantum leap of faith is needed. There are historical proofs for the existence of Jesus and what he taught, even for the resurrection of Jesus. Even for his resurrection, there are pretty solid historical proofs. But that's not the the leap of faith that's needed. You remember the rich young ruler who said he'd been obeying the rules, he loved God, he loved other people, What do I have to do to be saved? Jesus ended with, sell everything you've got and give the money to the poor. Come follow me. But that man loved his money more than Jesus. And all of us have our thing that we love more than Jesus. I tell my kids that all the time. It's obvious that right now, you love Batman more than Jesus. You love this pony more than Jesus. The big leap of faith is when we abandon everything we once held dear for the sake of gaining Christ. Adding Jesus to a pantheon of heart idols is nothing. Asking God to tear down our idols so we can worship Christ alone is everything. Realizing that nothing we can do, or nothing we can do, uh, nothing we can uh, do or add to our merit—that um, sorry—realizing that there is nothing we can do to add to our merit is actually really, really freeing. For those of us who are workers and doers and producers and want to be clever and and ingenious, there's actually a big weight that comes off the shoulders when this idol dies. A big weight. Jesus paid it all. That's not coming out of your wallet. (laughs) That's not coming out of your life. That Jesus paid it all. You didn't earn it, and you can't unearn it, for by grace you have been saved. I'm going to end by a quote, with a quote by John MacArthur. He said this uh, during a sermon on Ephesians 2, by the way. It was just too good not to include. Salvation didn't come to you by your confirmation, by your baptism, your church attendance, your church membership. It didn't come to you by giving money. It doesn't come to you by communion, keeping the Ten Commandments, living by the Sermon on the Mount, giving to charity, believing in God, being a good neighbor, living a respectable life, none of those things. In fact, hell will be loaded with people who did all of those. Salvation is through faith from sin, by love into life with purpose. It's for by grace that you have been saved. Remember your salvation and act like it. Lord Father God, thank you so much for your amazing grace. Thank you for reaching down into death to pull us into life. We need you, Father God. We needed you at the moment of salvation. We need you for a sanctification. We need you for a glorification, God. And I am so thankful that my salvation is not in my own hands. We love you, God. We ask that we, we can remember. We can remember the gospel daily. As we pick up our cross, we remember how far away we were. We remember how close we are. And we can remember to stay true to you, God, living our life according to your grace and your word. We love you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.